morning's scripture is from Acts 5, 1 through 11, and I'll be reading from the Contemporary English Version. Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, but they agreed to cheat and keep some of the money for themselves. So when Ananias took the rest of the money to the apostles, Peter said, Why has Satan made you keep back some of the money from the sale of the property? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? The property was yours before you sold it, and even after you sold it, the money was still yours. What made you do such a thing? You didn't lie to the people, you lied to God. As soon as Ananias heard this, he dropped dead, and everyone who heard about it was frightened. Some, some young men came in and wrapped up his body, then they took it out and buried it. Three hours later, Sapphira came in, but she did not know what had happened to her husband. Peter asked her, tell me, did you sell the property for this amount? Yes, she answered, that's the amount. Then Peter said, why did the two of you agree to test the Lord's spirit? The man who buried Ananias, the men who buried Ananias are by the door and they will carry you out. At once she fell at Peter's feet and died. When the young men came back in, they found Sapphira lying there dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The church members were afraid, and so was everyone else who heard what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have been asking the question, how can a church be both biblically faithful and theologically diverse? And the answer that we've been working on for quite some time now is, is this one, that All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. And we've been going line by line through the creed uh, because it is uh, an ancient summary of the gospel. And uh, we've worked our way through the first line, which is about the Father, the second line, which is about the Son, and the third line is about the Holy Spirit. And that's where we began the week before Easter. And it begins by simply saying, we believe in the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, the Lord. And I want to talk to you tonight uh, about this idea that the Holy Spirit is the Lord. Why would the fathers put that into the Nicene Creed? Uh, one of the reasons why was there was a heresy, a, an argument, uh, a debate going on about the Holy Spirit at that point that went something like this, that really what you have in the Godhead, in the Trinity, is a, the Father and his son, who is underneath him, and the spirit, who is the father's grandson. And that was a common way of thinking about the spirit, that he was kind of a, a junior member or a, a helper or an uh, adjunct faculty or something like that. I mean, he, wasn't, he didn't have tenure. He wasn't fully a part of it. Uh, and so the fathers worked very hard to say, no, that's, that's not right. Uh, the scriptures clearly teach that the Holy Spirit is just as divine as the Father and the Son and a full partner of the Godhead. Now, it strikes me that for, for some good reasons, we still struggle with a misunderstanding 
of the Holy Spirit like that. Um, and it's, it's understandable because the Scripture sometimes is hard to understand. For example, there are a lot of Scriptures that say things like, the Spirit exists to glorify the Son. Um, we say things, I've said things like, the Spirit is the shy member of the Trinity. He doesn't draw attention to himself. One of my favorite illustrations of the Holy Spirit got from a, somewhere, I don't remember where at the moment, but uh, it, it's that the, Jesus is like a great cathedral and the Holy Spirit is like a great spotlight shining on the great cathedral. His role is to illuminate the cathedral. You don't look at the spotlight, you look at the cathedral. I think that's a good illustration of the Spirit's role of exalting Christ. But if you stay there too long, you kind of come away with the idea that, that he really is second class. That, that he is not fully Lord. And, and you remember that word in the Old Testament means God. Uh, that Jesus is, that the Spirit isn't fully God. But that is not true. The, new, the new early Christians called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the living God. One point Paul calls him, he says, the Lord is the Spirit uh, they worship the Spirit at times. They, they pray to Him as God. They use His name interchangeably with God the Father and God the Son. So the early Christians experienced the Spirit of God as fully divine. And that is why the fathers at Nicaea uh, made sure that the church would call Him Lord. But now, what, what I want to work out with you tonight is, is something, frankly, I've never preached on and never fully thought about. Uh, like we will tonight, and it's this. What does it mean to live under the lordship of the Spirit? Uh, what, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, if you were a follower of Christ in gospel days, you wouldn't have had to ask that question because you would have followed the lordship of Jesus Christ, the physical Jesus Christ. You would have surrendered to him as a physical flesh and blood Lord. But then Christ leaves, returns to heaven, pours out the Holy Spirit. We've looked at that in the first chapters of Acts. And the Holy Spirit becomes the expression of Christ's lordship over the believer's life. And so there's a transition in lordship. In the Gospels, they are under the lordship of Christ. In Acts, the church is under the lordship of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It, 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 is it like signing up for the class of a great professor, and then when you get there, there's a TA doing the lecturing, and you think, oh, man, I missed the, the famous guy. Uh, no. Jesus in John 14 to 17 actually, and this still is hard for me to understand, but he actually says, I'll tell you what, I, the Son of Man, am leaving you, but you'll actually be better off that the Lordship of the Spirit is, is so great, so magnificent, that this is still hard to imagine, that we'd be better off, we're better off tonight than if Jesus were at the table. Wow. I think that's what he said. That the, the Holy Spirit reigns over the entire church in a way that he couldn't as a flesh and blood divine human being. There's a, a quote that I read that I thought captured this a little bit. In, in the Holy Spirit, God himself is immediately present in our midst, miraculously and savingly at work, and through him God reveals himself as Lord, 
In the Holy Spirit, God acts directly upon us himself. Luke wrote the book of Acts to describe what it looks like for a Christian, for a Christian community to live under the authority of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, he tells them to wait for the pouring out of the Spirit. In Acts 2, the Spirit's poured out on the church. In Acts 3 and 4, they experience the power of the Spirit. And one of the ways that they experience the Spirit's power in this new community is with a swelling of generosity. Uh, evidently, there were a lot of poor people in the early church, and there was no social safety net. And one of the things that happened is as they all came together and began to do life together and worship together and study the Word together and break bread together, is they began to realize, you know, Bill over there, I guess he would have been called Bill in first century <laughs> Jerusalem, but I can't remember. Tobias over there um, didn't eat last night. And I've got this extra... Uh, sack of, of, of flour, and I'm going to sell that so that I can give it to Tobias so that he can eat. And this stuff started happening spontaneously, and people were selling stuff and, and giving it away uh, so that they could care for each other. A very powerful move of the Spirit. And Ananias and Sapphira see this, and they're a part of this Spirit work, uh, which really must have been remarkable. And they want to get in on it, but not really. Uh, they, they want to be perceived as having gotten in on it. They want to kind of manipulate the spirit so that they look like they're generous, but aren't as generous as they wanted to appear to be. Annas and Sapphira sold a piece of property. They agreed to cheat keeps the money for themselves. So when Ananias took the rest of the money to the apostles, Peter said, Why has Satan made you keep back some of the money from the property? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? The property was yours before you sold it, and even after you sold it, the money was still yours. What made you do it? You didn't lie to people. You lied to God. Now again, there was no law on the books that said that everybody had to do this. This was a spontaneous, spirit-led activity that they had decided to get involved with in a deceptive way. But what I want to point out in this passage, and I know it's a hard passage and a strange passage, and next week we'll look at the Lord, the giver of life, and it'll, uh, it'll, we'll go in a little different direction. But it's the best passage I know of that demonstrates how the church is now under the lordship of the Spirit. Because notice, Ananias, or Peter doesn't say, Ananias, you have defamed the memory of our founder. That'd be a normal thing to say, right? I mean, he just left. They loved him. He left such a great example. Ananias, you have broken the rules our founder gave us. Doesn't say that. He says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. The transition's shifted. They're now under the lordship of the Holy Spirit. And it's a powerful thing. I mean, in, in these Old Testament stories, in these New Testament stories, the physical is a picture of the spiritual. And there, there's something really powerful going on here. The, the spirit, the presence of God is actually somehow connected with human flesh and life and, and, and the health of the community. I mean, this is a real thing. There's electricity running everywhere. It's a scary thing. 
the Lordship of the Holy Spirit. And this Spirit we, is to be obeyed. He now expresses the will of Christ over the church. And, and, and the, the people of God are to obey the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul will, will warn Christians not to grieve or quench the Spirit. Stephen will say to religious leaders, you stubborn and hard-headed people, you're always fighting against the Holy Spirit. You see, th- this isn't a life force. This is different than Star Wars. This is different than New Age spirituality. This is different than Buddhism, although there's overlaps with all of those. This is a person who has a will and emotions and desires and can be offended and grieved. And so Paul says, don't grieve him. Don't do that. Don't go there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, we're going to look at this next week, the Holy Spirit is a giver of life. He is the one who creates life. He is the one who wants you to flourish. He is the one who wants uh, you to become everything that God wanted you to become. He's the one who sends you into places to redeem and restore them. That's his will. And if you grieve him, you'll bring death instead of life. There's another troubling little encounter in the 12th chapter of Matthew's Gospel that illustrates the Lordship of the Spirit. Jesus heals a man possessed by a demon. The crowds watch the Spirit powerfully at work. And they step back and they're thinking, wait wait a minute. We just saw Jesus Christ heal a man from a demon. I, I I think he might be the Messiah. I think he might be the Son of Man. I think this may be the one. And, and, and people are starting to be drawn to him and worship him. The religious leaders get up and say, oh, no, 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 no. He cast out that spirit by Satan. And Jesus says some of the hardest things he ever says. He says, first of all, Satan's not an idiot. He's not going to cast himself out. And then he says... When I cast out demons by the power of God's Spirit, it proves the kingdom of God has already come to you. And then he says, even if you speak against the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven. Sometimes that's called the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? Well, this isn't a sermon about that, but from the text, it has something to do with denying the work of the Spirit in a way that ruins the reputation of Christ or hinders the work of Christ. Now, how on earth can that be unforgivable? The whole gospel is about all sins being forgiven, that anything you do can be forgiven. I mean, we believe that. That's the heart of the gospel. So what is Jesus saying here? I'm not exactly sure. But it seems that he's saying something like this, that if you continue to resist the Holy Spirit, and even go so far as to attribute to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit, if your heart gets that hardened to the work of the Holy Spirit, you will not be able to respond to the Holy Spirit. That's the best I can understand of that difficult passage. But this isn't a sermon about that. This is a sermon about the lordship of the Spirit. And what I want you to see in that passage is the extremely high view of the lordship and the authority of the Spirit Christ has. I mean, Jesus says, now you offend me, I can forgive that. You offend the Spirit, it's over. Whoa. (laughs) Wow. That's scary. 
soon as Ananias heard this, he dropped dead, and everyone heard about it, became frightened, and some young men came in, wrapped up his body, they took it out and, and buried it. One commentator said this, For the Christian reader, this is one of the most unnerving episodes in the whole New Testament. Yep. What we must appreciate, however, is that here we are in a wholly different world from what most of us are used to, a world where the spiritual realm has an almost intangible presence of raw, uncontainable energy and where infringement on the holy can have devastating results. So Luke is showing us what it looks like to live under the authority of the Spirit. And, and I know there's something unique about this period in history. The, the Holy Spirit has just exploded into the world like white-hot lava pouring out of a volcano. Uh, the Spirit's intensity is so thick that uh, Peter preaches 3,000 are converted. Sick people see Paul's shadow and they're, they're healed. A lie brings two deaths. Does it happen that way anymore? Not usually. But... Even if the white-hot intensity of those early days in the Spirit is cooled a little bit, the Spirit's still the same Spirit. And these stories are there to teach us truth. The Spirit will be obeyed. And, and I think the truth here is that resisting the Spirit, not yielding to His Lordship, not submitting to His authority in our lives, leads to death if not normally physical death, emotional death, relational death, intellectual death, spiritual death. The physical in the Bible is always a picture of the spiritual. Well, I want to just step into this a little more because it is kind of hard to figure out. How, how, what did they do? How did they resist the lordship of the Spirit? What, what was so wrong about it? Why was the Spirit so outraged? Why, why was there such a serious punishment? Well, this in your small groups would be a good uh, passage to just dig into and talk about a little bit, and see what you come up with. Just a couple of thoughts as we, as we go along. And, and I, I find this a troubling and disturbing story that I don't fully understand. Um, but I felt led to preach on it tonight. The, the first thing that I noticed is that Peter, Peter has supernatural insight into what was going on. There'd be no other way that he would have known what had happened. And it seems like the Spirit cares so much for this church, this little early church, which is the headwaters of the whole universal church, right? I mean, this is the very beginning. If you can mess it up at the beginning, maybe you can mess it up forever. And the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter a sin. That's how important it was to the Spirit. Peter, come over here. I know everybody's clapping for Ananias right now, but here's the receipt. And the next thing that we see is Peter describes it as lying to God and being moved to do so by Satan. And so something that I think we have going on here is what sometimes we call spiritual warfare. I mean, if you believe in the story, the Christian story, there, there are two opposing persons in the universe. 
God created Satan. Satan rebelled. Satan resists him. We don't know the details of that. We don't know all it looks like. I'm not going to speculate on that, but that's the biblical story. That's the story we live in and inhabit. And it appears that at this point, this opposing power, this opposing force, this opposing personality that opposes all human flourishing has seen the greatest threat to his kingdom since maybe other than the cross. And that is these spirit-baptized people who are about ready to take the news of Christ all over the world. So what does he do? He says, I've got to shut this thing down or this is going to get ugly. And so he prompts these folks to lie. Because he seems to know that if he can bring deception into the community, if he can bring a pretense and hypocrisy into the community, if if he can get into my relationships where I'm not honest with you, where I'm trying to be more spiritual than I really am with you, where it's all about show and what you think and not about what's really going on in my life, oh, the Holy Spirit will be just grieved and... Sad and quenched and disturbed. Shut down. I think maybe we see a little bit of fear here too. Isn't that why we lie? That's why I lie. I don't want you to really know me. Fear seems to give birth to the lies that... Quench the spirit. You know, that Star Wars movie, there's this scene where Obi-Wan says, I feel a deep disturbance in the force. And again, the force in Star Wars is not the same thing as the Holy Spirit because he's not personal. The Holy Spirit's personal. But it's a similar kind of thing happening here. As they stand up on the podium and they say, and and, and we and my wife are proud to contribute uh, so many shekels from our field. It's, it's like the elders are stepping back going, whoa. Oof. They, they feel this deep disturbance in the community, the, the spirits being grieved and, and wounded. Maybe one other thing we can notice, and I do encourage you to look at this more later, is this is a communal problem. Uh, their sin is not independent. It has affected the whole body. You know, someone recommended uh, the, the PBS series about cancer, the emperor of all maladies. Um, it, it's on in April. Very, very powerful. It's about the history of cancer treatment and, and kind of the present status of it. It's very disturbing. And one of the things that I don't think I ever understood about why how hard it is to treat cancer is because it's not isolated and you whack it here and it just spreads. It just goes all over the body. And, and I think that's a picture of sin in the community. It's not just you in your room last night. It's not just you in your computer. It's not just you and your wife, it's not just you and your car, it's me and your car and Bob and your car and Chris and your car that somehow 
We're all connected. And when I do something in secret, I do it to you. Maybe that's why he was so serious with this. I I have a good friend I've known for a long time uh, who uh, I realized had lied to me for two years uh, about something very important over and over again. And he's a, he's a good person. But he was afraid and he did a bad thing. And now what's so painful to watch is the death that is all around him because of the deception and how the cancer just keeps spreading even though the chemotherapy of forgiveness has been applied. It's, it's horrible. That's what happens when we hide from each other and deceive each other and aren't authentic. And when I care more that you think I'm generous than letting you know I really struggle with not being generous. So I was praying about this. Uh, There's a story from the Old Testament we go back to every once in a while. It's that one in Genesis 26, uh, about 11-ish. And it's where Isaac goes into uh, this plain called Gerar, and he's about to take over the land. And, And again, think spiritual applications here. And his enemies don't want him there, and so what do they do? They go, they clog up his wells. Because obviously in the ancient world, you were about two days away from death without water. And so if you want to shut somebody down, you clog up their wells. And when Isaac begins to walk with God and experience the favor of God, the first thing he does is he unclogs the wells so that his people can flourish. And... And that's such a powerful picture, I think, about what the enemy does to us. He he doesn't want the life of the Spirit to be released out of us. Remember, the Spirit's already in us. You don't have to go out and grab it. He's there. He wants to be released out of us. But the enemy comes along... And stops up our wells. Are you aware of any place where your well is stopped up? Are you aware of maybe something in your life that isn't allowing the Holy Spirit to naturally flow through you in the way that He normally would? I suspect we all are in some ways. Uh, and, and I think maybe Ananias and Sapphira give us some clues. You know, where we're living out of fear, where we're living in deception, where we're hiding things, where we're not trusting, uh, where we're manipulating, where we're deceitful, where there's lots of secrets, uh, where we're holding on to an image that isn't really true. That's where we really, really get clogged up. And here's the thing that's so darn troubling about this is there, there is an enemy involved with it, and so it gets real deceptive, and you start to think that what you have is normal. 
and that the way you're living is normal and that some of the things you're doing is normal and it's not normal at all. And the reason why you don't get caught is because you don't let anybody know. And the well just continues to shut down. Well, the last part of the story is equally disturbing. His wife comes in. She lies too, and she dies. And and, and Peter says to her, why did you test the Lord's spirit? And that's a a word that means tempt. It's, It's the same idea that you see with Jesus in the wilderness where Satan tempts him. It's the same idea you see in the desert in the Old Testament where Israel tests the Lord and tempts him. And I, and I pondered about it. I'm not exactly sure what, what that means for us, but I think it has something. Somebody pointed out to me it's the opposite of trusting. It, 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 her whole posture of protecting herself from exposure, of covering up lies, of managing her reputation, of not wanting people to know, of presenting something she's not, it all comes out of a lack of trust instead of faith. I think that's something to do with testing the Lord. And I'll end with this. just want you to, to think about this, and I know a lot of us aren't here tonight, and maybe they'll listen to it on online, but I think this applies to communities too, that there are ways where a congregation can um, live out of fear and not out of faith and not trust. And and you know, we're we're in this series um, called Seeking the Peace of the Church, and the whole, there's two parts to it. I've I've said this a lot, but we started a long time ago. Uh, The first part is we're trying to look at the Nicene Creed. We're trying to Look at the, the core of our faith, the core gospel, what all Christians in all places in all times have always believed. And that's what we're doing for a long time here, to, to lay that out, just to make sure we've got the gospel right. This is what we ask you to affirm if you want to you know, be a member here. You're free. You come here with whatever you believe. But if you want to join, that's the circle. It's the Nicene Creed. So we're going through that. But then the second part will be, uh, what do we do as a congregation when we do disagree? about serious stuff, about important stuff. What do we do? Well, I've been polling you and uh, asking for your feedback, and, and there's kind of two different responses so far. Um, we're, it's about 50% each way. Uh, half of you have told me, I don't think we really should do anything after the series. I think... If hard questions come up about doctrine and belief, I think we should handle them with our people in our small group. Um, I'm very nervous, this first group says, about uh, doing anything as a congregation. Like Several of you told me I was in a congregation once that did that. It split the congregation. So that's one group saying, I think we should handle it with our people. Smaller. Don't want to do big, big stuff. The other group says, you know, I think it's really important that we have some meetings as a whole congregation to talk about some of the uh, more challenging doctrinal subjects today because if we don't, when are we going to talk about it? And are the people in the small groups really equipped to talk about it? And 
we, we all kind of want to avoid hard things, so wouldn't that result in us never talking about hard things? And as often happens in church business, both sides are equally passionate. <laughs> that was supposed to be a little levity to kind of... Uh, <laughs> um, so... I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do. The board's going to talk about this in May and in June. We're praying. You talk and pray about it. Talk to anybody on the board about it. Talk to me about it. We're just trying to discern how we as a congregation should handle difficult things. You know, we have differences of opinion about important things. Abortion, homosexuality, creation, evolution, all all these politics. Lots of important things. What should we do with that as a congregation? I, I can only preach so far, and sooner or later I'm going to be done with this series, I promise. Uh, and then what do we do next? So, but, but here's something I find in my own spirit, and I hear in some of your hearts as well. This, this scares me. Um, we had this wonderful retreat with the shepherding team a couple weekends ago, and we told our stories. And, boy, I, I think uh, just a tremendous idea. Uh, Dan Holbrook and Ginger kind of hosted us and set it up, and we all spent 45 minutes just talking about our stories. And What a great way to start working together. You just begin to understand where people are coming from. And one of the things, that, see, I've done this several times with other retreats, and so I knew I wouldn't get emotional, which was why I was not worried about it. Well, um, I got emotional. And I got emotional because I remembered some things from my own story where conflict had terrified me and made me feel that uh, whenever you get into a fight with someone you love, they leave. And I I realized that I brought that into our little community here. I, I so love what we have. I so love who we are. I so love who you are. I want to spend the rest of my ministry here that... Even the thought of having a conversation about homosexuality or abortion or uh, whether it's right to go through a coach every year at the basketball program, whatever it is that, uh, that we're arguing about, uh, it, it, it creates anxiety for me. And if you've ever been through a church that split, it's going to create a lot of anxiety for you. So... I think what I'm saying at the end, at the end of this uh, long monologue um, is let's trust the Lordship of the Spirit. I really don't know what we should do. But let's together try to figure it out. Let's be honest about what we're afraid of. I've told the board what I'm afraid of. And let's just walk this out together. Let's pray.